You are listening to the Innovative Workforce Podcast, live from Las Vegas, Nevada. This is the Innovative Workforce, where we explore, question, and share ideas about the reinvention of the modern workforce. My name is Andres Fijo, Policy Analyst at the Office of Workforce Innovation. As Owen's Policy Analyst, Part of my job is to understand the complex legal and policy foundations that modern-day workforce development rests on. In this presidential election year, when Americans will be deciding which direction they want the country to move in, this got me asking some basic questions. At the national level, why does government play a central role in workforce development? And why have government efforts in workforce development surprisingly, unlike a lot of issues in American society today, enjoyed continued bipartisan support. Finally, what could threaten to erode that bipartisanship? The proper role of government at both the state and federal level has been a central political question since the founding of our country. There are those who argue that government should be limited and constitutionally constrained at all costs, with a special emphasis on maximizing individual freedom to the greatest extent possible. Others maintain that government should play a more active role in society, intervening forcefully when necessary to expand and enhance equality. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with these two viewpoints, but a third and more balanced approach is that government can be used in a limited but effective way to enhance social mobility. In other words, giving people and communities the tools necessary to flourish. It was in this spirit that led Abraham Lincoln to create land-grant colleges in the Transcontinental Railroad in the 1800s. Teddy Roosevelt's monopoly busting and square deal vision was done to benefit the average citizen. Among other things, Franklin D. Roosevelt launched the modern-day social safety net through the creation of Social Security, and he signed the GI Bill into law, granting soldiers returning from war a range of benefits most notably financial assistance for higher education and vocational training. These progressive efforts were continued and even enhanced under subsequent conservative administrations. Dwight Eisenhower created the interstate highway system, which allowed Americans to not only transport goods more efficiently, but move more easily to promising economic opportunities in other parts of the country. In the wake of the Soviets launching Sputnik, he signed the National Defense Education Act, which invested massive amounts of federal money into the education system at all levels to bolster the country's scientific and technological know-how. Over the years, these institutions of social mobility have either been continued and reformed or served as inspiration for countless other efforts in both Republican and Democratic administrations. I see what we now know as the public workforce development system as a government function falling under this third tradition a collective effort from government at the national, state, and local level in concert with private sector partners to prepare people for employment, help workers advance in their careers, and ensure a skilled workforce in a time when globalization and technological advances force countries to either adapt or face stagnation. Now, what does this look like in Nevada? This partnership web extends from the federal level with the U.S. Department of Labor and U.S. Department of Education to state agencies like Owen, the Governor's Office of Economic Development, the Office of Science, Innovation, Technology, the Department of Employment, Training, and Rehabilitation, and other partners, 
all the way down to the local level with entities such as our community colleges and local workforce development boards. Since its inception during the Great Depression almost 90 years ago, the workforce development system has evolved and adapted to different times. From its origins in New Deal legislation like the Wagner-Pizer Act, which established the Employment Service, to later statutes like the Manpower Development and Training Act in the 1960s, the Comprehensive Employment Training Act of the 1970s, all the way to the Workforce Investment Act of 1998, which most notably created the one-stop system that continues to this day, and the Workforce Innovation Opportunity Act of 2014, known as WIOA, which is the federal statute that currently governs the workforce system. Now, one thing all these laws have in common is that they were supported and ultimately approved by wide bipartisan majorities and signed into law by presidents of both parties. Now, today, many issues divide lawmakers. There's little consensus on issues like guns, climate change, immigration, health care, even wearing masks, to name a few. But why hasn't the education and training of our workforce stoked partisan passions and division, at least not yet? Why is workforce development generally an issue that both parties can work together on a bipartisan basis? I think there's a couple reasons for this. One, as mentioned, the public workforce system has been around since the Great Depression, so it has institutional roots that make it a permanent fixture. From a public relations standpoint, workforce development isn't a dramatic life-and-death issue like guns and health care or emotional-like immigration. So media outlets rarely report on it, thereby keeping the political temperature low. Politically, leaders on both sides care about providing their constituents with the ample job opportunities and chances of economic mobility because better career opportunities and economic well-being generally leads to happier people. And in turn, happier people tend to re-elect the leaders who help them. But at the heart of it, workforce development does, has, and will likely touch everyone directly or indirectly in some way. Workforce development is essential to any society's prosperity and success, whether in periods of growth or recession. Education and training are critical to close the skills gap that occurs through ways of new technological advances. Simply put, we have to get this right. The urgency of ensuring the American workforce, particularly those with less education and skills, is ready to perform in a future heavily shaped by accelerating technological advances, automation, AI, and other factors that will change the nature of, or in some cases eliminate the existence of many current jobs, has not been met in recent years. Although the Trump administration publicly touts the importance of workforce development, and that's welcomed, the U.S. still invests significantly less in this area than comparable nations. The consequences of a lack of digitally skilled workers will continue to hinder our economy in the years to come. And with the scourge of COVID-19 disproportionately affecting those with less education and skills, as well as women and people of color, many workers are at a crossroads either pinning their hope that their old job may come back or looking for opportunities to reskill and move into a new field with better opportunities for advancement in case of job loss. So how will workforce development leaders and politicians need to respond now that COVID-19 will likely rapidly accelerate the changes in work we only thought were theoretically possible just a couple years ago? 
Like it has in past years, the workforce development system will need to adapt and fix the shortfalls it currently has to meet the demands of a new reality. Now, I'm not going to advocate a menu of specific policy prescriptions at this point, but I do believe that any strategy pursued will need bipartisan support to be sustainable. This does not mean that differences will not arise. And workforce development typically isn't a hot-button political issue and oftentimes is relegated to the sidelines. But as our economy recovers in COVID-19, the bipartisan spirit that helped build and reform the workforce development system over the years will hopefully be sustained. To keep it that way, our leaders, when articulating the strategy going forward, should be united on a few principles. 1. Lifelong learning is a necessity. Political leaders should avoid the short-term temptations of nostalgia and advocate that we can bring back jobs that have been declining for generations or promise that the economy will come back to what it was pre-COVID. The necessity of being an adaptable lifelong learner needs to be a commonly shared conviction. How to promote lifelong learning is where the debate should center around. Two, more investment will be needed. Preparing for the future of work takes financial resources. While these financial resources often come from the federal government, it is public and private partners at the state and local level who carry out most of the workforce development related services helping displaced workers, youth, veterans, etc. With the unemployment rate at the highest level since the Great Depression, there's a strong possibility long-term unemployment could set in, a catastrophic result for many people. Therefore, efforts to reskill will come at a price, with more resources devoted to those most in need. This sentiment already had wide, had wide public support even before COVID-19 struck. A poll conducted through the, through the National Skills Coalition in early 2019 showed that 93% of voters across the country overwhelmingly supported increasing public investment in skills training. Three, reskilling needs to be an affordable multi-lane highway. Individuals seeking to reskill and go into other career fields should have access to as many affordable ways to get there. There's been a lot of progress lately on expanding online learning, promoting apprenticeships, and utilizing community colleges for short-term retraining efforts. The message should be that everyone has a role to play, and there are multiple pathways to success. Four, reskill for better jobs. Moving forward, public leadership prioritize the need to train and move more Americans into higher-skilled, higher-quality jobs with growth opportunities. Through this approach, workers will enjoy better financial security and the ability to endure evolving job market demands. Businesses, in turn, will have access to the talent they need to compete. 5. Providing reskilling is insufficient. While more public workforce development investment will be needed, these investments cannot only focus on retraining. Many displaced workers, hardest hit by this downturn, will need coaching and career support to help them successfully navigate what can be an overwhelming and confusing labyrinth of training options. Additionally, displaced working adults often face additional barriers such as child care, transportation, and other factors that make balancing these needs and reskilling very challenging. Providing access to these wraparound services must be a top consideration as well. And finally, Government can't do it all. 
Most workers are employed by the private sector, where government leadership and institutional and financial support are needed. The workforce development system, whether at the federal, state, or local level, should be prepared to offer assistance while continuing to put business and education practitioners in the driver's seat. But private sector employers, if they have the capability and resources to do so, should also be given the space and encouragement to lead initiatives under their own accord to reskill and rebuild their workforce. Overall, the economic recovery ahead will be long and arduous. But a good first step is to make workforce development in this extraordinary time a critical public policy priority, an area where both sides can agree on what's best for the future of the nation. I'm Andres Feature from Owen. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to The Innovative Workforce, presented by the Office of Workforce and Innovation of Nevada. If you like our show and want to know more about what we do, find us at owinn.nv.gov or leave us a review. Until next time, keep innovating, Nevada.